It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello from London, where there's big news to report the UK will hold an election in December. Prime Minister Boris Johnson hopes that voters will give his government a clear majority to at last approve Brexit and leave the European Union. You know, it's been three and a half years since voters decided to leave. I'm personally pretty confused about what's been going on. Okay, we'll explain. Understanding Brexit with Jill Rudder. The Prime Minister is very keen to be able to say he's got Brexit done. But even though he has surprised people by being able to conclude a withdrawal agreement, he really hasn't got Brexit done. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? Richard, I don't know if most of our listeners know that though you were born in the U.S., you spent a lot of your younger life in Great Britain. So you're in London this week. And one thing we talked about before you left was, could you help me understand what the hell is going on with Brexit? Well, the first thing to say is the October 31st deadline, the time when many thought that the UK would finally leave Brexit three and a half years after that referendum, has come and gone. So Britain is still in the EU. So when you headed over, you said you would look for a good guest who could bring us up to speed on this a little bit. So, Jim, I wanted to find somebody who would explain various sides of this argument and found Jill Rudder, who is a senior research fellow at the nonpartisan think tank UK in a Changing Europe. Jill has spoken a lot and done a lot of writing about the Brexit debate. I'm really looking forward to hearing about that from her. But first, I think for a lot of us, Trying to follow what's going on with British politics and Brexit is maybe a little bit like somebody from Britain coming to an American football game and trying to figure out what's going on if they didn't know the rules or hadn't ever seen one. So can I just walk you through a couple of questions just to get me and everybody else up to speed? So the British conservative government has been in control in the last few years, but they didn't really spearhead the Brexit movement. It didn't come from Parliament. It was voted in a public referendum. How did that work? They had a referendum, remain in the EU or leave the EU. And by a 52 to 48 percent majority, so pretty small, but still strong enough for there to be a clear outcome, uh, the British electorate decided to leave the European Union. But the problem is, even though that sounds simple, 
the electorate wasn't asked, what kind of leave would that be? So then the government had to negotiate an exit from the EU. The prime minister who, who backed the referendum, David Cameron, left office. He was replaced by Theresa May. What happened next? Theresa May was then replaced by Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson is a pro-Brexit politician. He negotiated a deal in October with members of the European Union. That was reached, and then the outlines of that deal were approved by Parliament, not finally approved. So he's made real progress before calling this election. But still, uh, as we said, the UK is still inside the European Union. Okay, so I think I understand the basic outlines of what we're talking about. We're ready to watch the football game. So why don't we go ahead and listen to the interview you had to do without my help by your side for once, but I'm sure you did a yeoman-like job. Where are we now compared to more than three years ago? The real problem is that it was a vote, a negative vote. We didn't want to be EU members, but it wasn't a vote for a sort of positive vision of, and we'll do this instead. So we've been rowing uh, for the last three years, both about whether we really should leave, but also what does leave look like? Because there are lots of different versions of what leave should look like. There are people who say, well, we want to get out of the EU's political institutions. We want to get out of it as a political project. We don't want ever closer union. That sort of forever increasing moves towards European integration. That's not for Brits. We don't really want that. We're not comfortable with that. But we want to maintain very close economic trading links and possibilities for security cooperation. That's one vision. That was the vision that people would call a sort of soft Brexit. And that's where quite a lot of the people who were for Remain before the referendum would say, well, actually, we've got to get on and accept that referendum result. That's where a lot of them have migrated to. Other people say, well, what's the point of basically leaving the political institution where you have some decision making, some say, and getting out of all that, but then staying economically locked in so you can't realise the opportunities of Brexit? And those people say we really need to strike out on our own as a much more independent nation. Uh, we can form our own free trade deals. We look to say, you know, we can do a deal with the US, something the EU's failed to do. We can be like Canada with the EU. We can be in a much more distant relationship. And that's the way we need to go. To put it very simply, there are two types of Brexit. There's soft Brexit and then there's hard Brexit, which would mean more independence. Um, what's the case for hard Brexit? Would it bring more opportunities and more risks? I think the case really is that it brings more opportunities. The interesting question is, is there appetite for taking those opportunities? Because one of the things people sort of say is that if you're a medium-sized power, and that's the UK would be a medium-sized power, how much do you actually get to determine things like, you know, regulatory standards? And one of the things people say is basically you have to throw your lot in with one of the regulatory superpowers. And those regulatory superpowers are the US, China, or the EU. We're probably not going to throw our lot in with China. So, you know, do we want to be close to the EU or do we want to be close to the US and its sort of approaches and standards, things like that? So in a sense, there's a bit of a thing saying the UK can be a regulatory leader. We'd be much more nimble without the EU. We could be much less protectionist than the EU. The EU traditionally has uh, has quite high levels of protection on agriculture. 
but quite a lot of the UK farmers really quite like the fact that uh, that the EU is quite protectionist and agriculture is not clear, that they really want to be exposed to the sort of winds of competition. So I think that's a really interesting dilemma going forward of how much political appetite there is to take the opportunities you could see coming from Brexit. So right now there are a lot of protected groups who haven't had to face up to the reality of being outside Europe and potentially really being decimated by a free trade agreement, say, with the US. So if you look at the sort of, you know, most economists say that putting up barriers with your biggest trading partner, the EU takes about 50% of UK goods and services. Putting up your barriers to doing business with your biggest trading partner hits the economy. That's 90% of economists who've written on this would say you take an economic hit from doing that. There may be a political benefit, but you take an economic hit. Right now, the the UK is part of this huge free trade zone, Europe, where it does at least half of its trade. Um, The alternative being completely outside Europe would be, in one scenario, to be on its own in a world which is dominated by large trading blocks in a global system. I mean, if you're a sort of Brexiteer, you're a Brexit supporter, you would say, well, look, this is a world in which Australia can conduct its own trade policy, Canada can conduct its own trade policy, New Zealand can conduct its own policy. New Zealand's got four million people, but they're quite effective players in international trade policy. So why shouldn't the UK be able to do that? Um, So we may be able to have some sort of influence there. But one of the problems for the UK, particularly in relation to the EU, is the EU has made it very clear that the price of, you know, of... uh, Access to their markets uh, on very favourable terms is signing up to quite a lot of EU rules and regulations, even in a free trade agreement, because we say, well, look at the Canada deal. We quite like the sort of deal you did with Canada and the restrictions you have there. And they say, well, but you're not Canada. You're much closer. Our economies are much more interlinked. We're not going to let you get away with the sort of minimal commitments on environmental regulation or labour standards than Canada. Because if you change those, and we have some people say the UK could become, the code is Singapore on Thames, a very deregulated free market, buccaneering economy. The EU does not want that sort of, you know, quite big economy. You know, we've got 65 million people, uh, quite big economy on their doorstep, which might make it difficult for them to sustain their social sense if they don't put up restrictions about UK access. But one of the big changes in the deal that Boris Johnson concluded with the EU last week was that he was aiming at a much more distant relationship with the European Union, much further along the route to a harder sort of Brexit than the one Theresa May, the previous prime minister, was aiming for in her deal. What about this argument put forward by a lot of Brexit supporters and also by some conservatives in the US who see a parallel with the way metropolitan elites respond to Trump, that uh, Parliament is dominated by a bunch of London elitists and they've done everything they can to frustrate the will of the British people, which was clearly expressed in this referendum three years ago that voted for Brexit. One of the problems, though, that Parliament has had is in interpreting what does Brexit mean, because nobody quite knows why people voted for Brexit. And there are competing visions of I'm voting for Brexit because I don't like lots of migrants. So there's we need to take back control of our borders. That was one of the very powerful messages of the Brexit campaign. And there's a sort of almost a sort of 
Should we turn the UK back to a sort of 1950s-style little Englandy era? That's a strand of the Brexit supporting. Globalisation has gone too far. There's another strand of Brexit which says being in the EU means we can't take enough advantage of globalisation. Yeah, we're shackled to the EU. That's growing slowly. We need to be able to do loads of deals with China, India and places that the EU has not been able to do. But there are also people who voted for Brexit just because they didn't like the government of the day. And in particular, they did not like the fact that they had suffered six years of cuts to public expenditure austerity. And there's quite a lot of saying, actually, why can't I get an appointment with my doctor? I remember we have our National Health Service, uh, which people in the UK really, really like. Now, that's hard in the US to understand, but people here are very attached to the National Health Service. But people would say, I can't get an appointment with my doctor. And when I go, I see lots of people there who aren't speaking English as their first language. Uh, The trouble with the Brexit vote is the Brexit vote was a stitched together coalition of people with very competing and different and conflicting views of where the country should go longer term. And there wasn't a platform that people could say, OK, we know what Brexit means. This is how we're going to do it. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies in London with Jill Rutter, who is a senior research fellow at the think tank, the UK in a changing Europe. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. In the United States, I think a lot of people see a parallel between Brexit and Donald Trump, that these are just two populist movements. What are the strengths and weaknesses of that point of view? I think, uh, what are some of the parallels? I think there's there's always been a strain of British Euroscepticism in the Conservative Party, and that goes quite a long way back. It used to be, actually, that the people who were sceptical about the EU were on the left wing rather than on the right wing. Um, you know, a lot of the original people who opposed UK entry were in the Labour Party and it was because it was seen, the EU was seen as a sort of capitalist club and they sort of moved on quite a long way uh, with the development of what was called sort of social Europe and now very keen to uh, to keep the protections for workers' rights and things like that we get through. Both tapped into, I think, quite a bit of the post-financial crisis sense that people had that they'd lost control of their economic destiny, they weren't getting on, incomes had stagnated. Our problem here, you know, with people depending more on public sector with possibly higher expectations of public services than you have in the US, that things weren't going very well for them. So there's a bit of a, there's clearly quite a lot in Brexit of let's just give the establishment a kick 
and sent a message that didn't like where the country was, didn't think it was doing things for us. Quite a lot of talk, which is very similar to the sort of Trump talk about Rust Belt and stuff like that, that Brexit was a vote of the left behind. Um, so quite a lot about that in some of the sort of northern seats, even those that are really benefited quite enormously from UK membership of the EU because quite a lot of you know, high-value-added manufacturing had come in to those places. Just to explain that the, the, the north of England um, traditionally and in the past was, was heavily dominated by industry. It's really where, in many respects, the Industrial Revolution began as early as the late 1700s. Um, and there are parallels between that and what we call the Rust Belt in, in the industrial Midwest, which swung from the Democrats to the Republicans in the 2016 election. Yeah. So quite a lot of what we call the sort of the seats that vote Labour uh, for the Labour Party, but voted for Leave. And there are a lot of people in what you would say are relatively prosperous places in the southeast, not in London. London was very heavily a Remain place, but in the sort of wider southeast, so the sort of London commuter belt, nice leafy places where people live in, nice houses. A lot of people there voted for Brexit as well. So it's not just a vote of the dispossessed and the people who are the losers from globalisation. And I think that's one of the really interesting debates because quite a lot of people on the Remain side say people didn't know what they were voting for and no one voted to make themselves poorer. People on the other side say, actually, that's very patronising. We knew exactly what we were doing. And actually, we think it's worth paying a bit of an economic price just to have our own control, more autonomy, more sovereignty. And that's part of the debate. that People are talking past each other. So assuming that Britain does actually, in some way, leave the EU, then what? What happens? No, it's really interesting because the Prime Minister is very keen to be able to say he's got Brexit done. But even though he has surprised people by being able to conclude a withdrawal agreement, he really hasn't got Brexit done. He hasn't got Brexit done in two ways, I think. One of which is all we have is an agreement on how we leave the EU. We haven't nailed that future relationship. But the other way in which Brexit's not done is Brexit's placed inordinate strain on the constitutional settlement in the UK. So when you talk about constitutional arrangements, you mean that, that, that the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland could potentially break up over this, that Scotland might well vote for independence independence and that the constitutional sort of truce or arrangement between Northern Ireland and, and the Republic of Ireland in the, in the South, those arrangements could really be threatened by this. Yeah, I mean, it's putting pressure on both. So uh, the interesting thing in Scotland is if the UK is outside the EU and Scotland wanted an independent future where it was an EU member, hugely harder than when we're both EU members together. So there's a really interesting difference that the political case for independence is much stronger. The identity case for independence is much stronger. The economic case is much weaker. So that's something that the Scots will have to resolve, but we may be heading towards another independence referendum. The situation in Northern Ireland and Ireland is really interesting because the reason Boris Johnson could do his deal last week was he accepted something Theresa May said she wouldn't Except, which is a very big degree of differentiation between the future for Northern Ireland and the future for what we call Great Britain. That's England, Scotland, Wales. But what that's really done 
is given a shock to unionism, which is saying we've just been thrown under a bus, I think to use a technical term, by our conservative allies. We were propping up the conservative government, but they have actually reneged on all their commitments to not, uh, not introduce a border in the Irish Sea. So they're very unhappy. But it's also given a renewed impetus to reunification between North and South. So it may be a way off, but it's certainly changed the dynamic of the conversation in Northern Ireland. Final question, and usually we ask it earlier, (laughs) which is, how do we fix it? Are there any ways forward that you see from what is now a very confusing time with very few things being settled uh, well over three years after this uh, leave or remain referendum? It's hard to see at the moment. Um, It's all very polarised. And one of the really interesting phenomenon of uh, the last three years is what was a very close vote? It was 52, 48%, you know, just over a million votes difference between the uh, the two sides is that the sort of warring over what Brexit means has meant that the sort of middle ground has almost evaporated. The people who want to say, well, actually, can't we just sort of meet somewhere in the middle? People are both moving to a harder form of Brexit. And actually, there are people who say that Boris Johnson has sold out by his deal. We actually ought to just be walking away from the EU. You know, why are we writing a big check to them to settle our financial liabilities? We should have what they call a clean Brexit rather than just a hard Brexit. Um, And other people who say this is all such a serious mistake. It was a fraudulent referendum. People sold a false prospectus. Look how awful this has been. We just need to go. And we've actually got one of our political parties, the Liberal Democrats, fronting up for the next election, not on a platform of another referendum, so asking the people again, but just saying, just let it stop, which is quite a big refrain you hear over here. Let's just get out of this. Let's just say that was all a horrible dream. So in other words, so in other words, let's stay in the European Union. Let's just not ask the people. They're saying if they got a majority in election, they won't get a majority in election, but they're now running on a platform uh, of saying, okay, let's just say those last... Three years were, you know, the Dallas Dallas fallacy, the equivalent of Bobby Ewing's dream. Let's just wake up and say that nightmare's over. Let's just get back into the EU. But of course, that's difficult too because the uh, uh, the dynamic if the UK were to stay an EU member would have already shifted because of these sort of three traumatic years that we've been through. So I don't think anything could really be the same. We can't undo the effects of these three years, either on domestic politics or on our relationship with the EU. So any hope from all this? Uh, Well, I think one of the things you could say is it really has sort of energised political debate. It's actually meant the really, really interesting outcome of this is having had 45 years where we were sort of passive but rather sort of apathetic and underinformed members of the EU, we now actually have a very lively, maybe at times too lively and too aggressive debate over the EU. We probably have a much better understanding of where, uh, of the benefits and the costs of EU membership. So I think people are better informed about that. One of the really interesting, interesting phenomena since 2016 is that public attitudes towards migration have changed radically. No, it having been a very top and very important and very toxic issue in British politics. Now, it's gone down the political salience rankings a long way. 
No one quite knows. In other that. words, it's 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 not such a big issue it's anymore. It's not such a big issue, and actually, that's partly because we've been having a much better conversation about what are the benefits of migration. Yeah, because we know now there's a lot of discussions about how our national health service, social care, lots of sectors of the economy are really very dependent on migrant labour. So I think you can see some good things coming out of it. I mean, there's much higher levels of political engagement, uh, which is good. So uh, and maybe at some point we see that all coming, coming together. But we still seem to be a bit of a way off that yet. Jill Rutter from the think tank. UK in a changing Europe. Thanks very much. Okay, thank you. So coming up next, our conversation with Jim and me um, after listening to the interview with Jill Rudder. Boy, that was just so helpful and informative to me. And I love it when we have a guest who's really able to give a good balanced overview of an issue that's been really colored with an awful lot of animosity. And I was particularly struck by the way everybody talks about Brexit mirrors the Trump phenomenon. But one thing that occurred to me when, when she was talking about how the fact that a lot of people supported it, they weren't traditionally conservative. It actually, a lot of them were were labor supporters. So it, it cut more across an ideological divide that doesn't map very well with traditional right-left thinking, very much like Trump's anti-free trade populism Um brought in supporters who were not your traditional Republicans. That's right. The British political map has been redrawn now, and this election that's going to take place in December will be dominated by whether you're for or against Brexit, as opposed to whether you are pro-conservative or pro-labor, which is traditionally the Socialist Party. I was also really intrigued by the way she described all the different strands that go into this. And it's something we've talked about in this country, too. It's so easy to just label a populist group as just hateful or racist. They're only motivated by anti-immigrant sentiment. There are some truths in that with some people, but there are also many other strains, anxieties. There's no question that there are some Brexit supporters who are racist and oppose immigration. But it's unfair to say that that is necessarily the majority or or all of the Brexit coalition. It also includes people who want Britain to have more economic autonomy and favor free trade, but on a global rather than regional basis. Yeah, you know, we interviewed Steve Hilton, former David Cameron advisor, in the first year of the show before the Brexit vote, and he made some of those points. He felt that the real argument for it was the autonomy to make their own deals and also to make decisions within their own country and not be subject to a lot of highly detailed and he saw as as highly intrusive rules. Now we'll find out whether that argument succeeds in the real world. If they really get this thing through, I think there may still be a lot of pain ahead for Britain and the EU. Absolutely. I don't think this Brexit thing is done at all. I, I will say that the case for Europe, as opposed to just the case against, has also been made much more clearly in the past few years. Uh, I think there are a lot of people who think that uh, it's important to be closely tied to uh, Britain's 
biggest trading partner, and they also feel strong emotional ties towards Europe. There are a lot of British people who live in European countries, and there are also a lot of Europeans who live in the UK. And those ties for many are particularly strong, especially in a city like London, where it doesn't take very long to realize that there are a tremendous number of people, not only from all parts of Europe, but from all over the world. So what's your prediction? My prediction is that Britain will leave the European Union, but that the negotiations over what kind of leave there will be will be long and torturous, and that we're by no means out of the Brexit mess. We'll have to do an update. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. The music is by Luz Stravinsky. And we're a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Check out our website, DaviesContent.com. And thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.